Welcome to the Thriving Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Kilpatrick. Our mission is to inspire, educate, and celebrate sustainable farming. We believe that you can build a profitable, sustainable farm that gives you true farm freedom. Join us as we talk to farmers, innovators, educators, and entrepreneurs to glean their top takeaways in business and life. Today, my guest is Anne Aceta Scott, a dedicated first-generation homesteader and author behind The Farm Girl's Guide to Preserving the Harvest. While managing her family farm in Middle Tennessee, Anne shares her journey from self-taught beginnings to becoming a community cultivator and advocate for a simpler, more sustainable way of life. Anne, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So give me a little bit of a background of how you got started. Well, let's just start that we, it, we've been doing this for about 10 years, but my husband and I don't come from any form of homesteading or farming background in any way, shape or form. We are basically self-taught. Okay. And when we decided to live this life, we jumped in like full on, we were living in outside of Seattle by about 30 minutes at the time on less than two acres. And, um, it started, you know, as always with chickens and a garden and then dairy goats. And from there, we just kept the ball rolling and the momentum going. And it ended up in the long haul about two years ago, we ended up in Tennessee and, um, we went from less than two acres to 42 acres. And, um, we are teaching at a completely different level than just online. Now we are teaching, um, at a full force of our community outside the community and, um, just, you know, traveling and speaking on the, um, you know, at conferences and stuff like that. But we now have gone from just a few little staples that we used to preserve and, um, can and ferment and raise chickens and meat chickens to now a truly functioning farm that actually offers items out to the public. Very cool. Very cool. So you were basically West Coast transplants and you kind of dove in with uh, feet first. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> okay. All right. So what would you say the biggest challenge was for you as you kind of went from that very small acreage to 42 acres? I think that the, 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 the vision was this, was that when we decided to go from the two, we actually prepared ourselves for the journey prior to getting to Tennessee. Um, we had friends that, um, uh, my friend was, a uh, ran a micro dairy outside of Idaho. So I was able to learn about dairy cows through her my neighbor raised sheep. So we were able to learn how to keep sheep prior to coming to Tennessee. But then on top of that, we also ran hogs in Washington state, but not on our little two acres in the mountains. We had to run them off a neighbor's property. So in lieu of keeping our, you know, our feeder pigs there, we did a land clearing exchange for them. And so we had a little bit of a guideline and a jump start prior to coming here. So we had the base foundations of what we wanted to do. But when we got to the farm here in Tennessee, it is was completely overgrazed and we had to learn really hardcore proper pasture rotation and, you know, what we were going to do with our hogs in that moment in time. And so jumping in maybe isn't the right term. I think what it was, was, was just getting here and fast tracking through it. I mean, we have a found a sound fundamental belief that, um, that infrastructure should come first and a good infrastructure setup can be anywhere from one to three years, depending on your knowledge and what you're going to do. However, when we got here two years ago, um, we were buying meat from Walmart because we're in the middle of nowhere and our packages of meat were rainbow colored. 
So we ended up having to immediately do infrastructure for one type of livestock to bring it in. And then we moved on to the other livestock and then from there and there and there. And then in less than six months, we had everything on the farm to be 100% sustainable, even down to our grass-fed beef. Very cool. Yeah. So it was it was pretty interesting in regards to how quickly when your mindset's to saying, you know, you're not going to be able to consume the meat from the closest grocery store, which is 30 minutes from you. And you would have to travel like an hour and 20 minutes to get to another grocery store. So it became like this fast track movement of saying, okay, we've got to do this and we've got to do it now. And if we don't, then we're going to be stuck. So we put the garden on hold because we knew truly had a garden, but now getting everything in, getting them bred, getting to the point where we were bringing in feeder hogs for that first two, um, two rounds of feeder hogs to put pork in the freezer, pasture-raised chickens immediately, because that was more easy food in the freezer. Um, our milk cow, we, um, you know, she was bred and we had to wait for her to calve before we would have all of our dairy ready, things like that. So, so was it a lot? <laughs> Absolutely. But I am thankful for the knowledge that we had prior to have it here when we did arrive on the farm. Absolutely. So talk to me about that infrastructure, because I think that's a key aspect to many farms is what kind of infrastructure did you start putting up? Uh, let's just say the pastures were completely overgrazed. We knew we had to bring back the natural habitat that was there, not the intensive weeds that were there, but that actual natural grasses that were underneath the weed seed bank. We wanted the good seed bank to open up. So the first thing we did was um, with our dairy cow that we brought on, um, we brought on katahdin sheep, you know, completely very, very parasitic resistant. And we knew that we needed to wake up the earth. The one thing that I left with the individual who taught us how to keep sheep had, he was an old farmer in our area. And he had told us if there's three animals that you're going to raise, it's going to be a cow, pigs, and sheep. And here's the reason why he goes, your cow will feed every single living creature on your property while fixing your pastures, your sheep, the way that they move and they continue to graze continually opens up the seed bank while taking down the invasiveness because they like to consume that. And then on top of that, you can use your hogs to clear your land while eliminating all the waste. So those were the first three animals that we brought on. So with the pasture rotation, what we set up was is that our sheep was rotating, uh, had been rotating with our dairy cow at that point. We kept them on track for three days in one space, and then we would jump them continually, continually, continually. Now we did end up seeding the first year that we were here because there was a lot of invasive weeds. And um, we ended up bringing in dairy goats for that particular reason to start clearing the brush around the fence line of the property. And then the hogs went into the woods to start clearing out the wooded area. So with the infrastructure, it was really essential that if we were going to continue having, we have three pastures, we have a North pasture, a South pasture, and then a West pasture. If we were going to continue to be reliant on hay, then we didn't have to fast track it, but we didn't want to be reliant on a lot of hay. We wanted our, our herd of whatever it was to be able to, consume all of the bad stuff, right? With the sheep and the goats and things like that. And then let the cows start grazing without destroying the pasture, as long as we move them on a regular basis. So we ended up working through 23 acres and getting it done. And now what we're looking at is about 25% less weeds that first year than we had when we first moved onto the property. So this past year, year two, we now have the north pasture almost up to par 
to where if we wanted to see some winter rye, for example, um, just to have a little bit of longevity in greens for the cows, at that point, it would be feasible for us to do because it wouldn't be buried in the invasive vegetation that was already here. Absolutely. Um, so then you started with cows and you have uh, sheep. Um, and now with the sheep, um, remind me, the Katahdin sheep, something that you can take the wool from as well? No, Katahdins are hair sheep. So basically, I okay. because we had never personally raised sheep, I wanted something as simple as possible. Where we live in Tennessee is Wayne County. It's the largest county in Tennessee. However, it's the most remote county, basically. There's not much in this area at all. So looking for someone who was going to come shear for us because I was not interested in fiber was not really something I wanted to get into. And then on top of that, having the Katahdins, because they are pretty disease resistant, um, it was essential for me. So they're not really sensitive to the climate and the area as long as you keep them moving um, from past from paddock to paddock, they're going to be completely fine. So I wanted a breed that was hardy to the area, one that I didn't have to shear and worry about fiber or what to do with the fiber. So we went with a hair sheep um, and then one that was pretty darn hardy at that point in time. Absolutely. Um, talk to us a little bit about kind of like this was a rapid movement to doing all of this. Uh, what kind of I think your your biggest challenges during that time was it just getting the work done or did anything else come to top of mind? Uh, a little bit of everything, actually. Financially, it was a big hardship. Um, we did with our sale from the Washington property, we were able to um, buy this property and so we have no mortgage on this. So we had a little bit of a piggy bank left over when we did that. But everything that we did was always cash on hand. So we we owe no debt at all. So um, so even the um, our Airbnb that's here on the farm is completely paid off. So what we what it was was our focus was because we're in our early fifties that we didn't want to have debt. So we had to make sure that with each month it was planning of okay this is what we're going to do this. Let's just say we're now bringing in our, our boar. So with the boar coming in, we needed to make sure that we had enough cash to go ahead and build the area up where we were going to keep him, pay for him, bring him on. So it was basically having the funds to continually move the project along. And on top of that, Justin, you know, was working, is working four days a week, Monday through Thursday. So we have three days a week in order to complete the tasks that we need to be completed to do um, what we needed to do to be able to eat our own food. Um, and then from that point, it was, you know, there were, there were months that, you know, some projects took a little bit longer barn repair, for example, was, was that. So now that we are very comfortable and we have all of our solar panels set up on the pastures the way that we want them moving the, the learning the system of how to move your livestock without chaos was a big, um, a big deal, a big success for us, I guess I should say. So, you know, we learned to build three paddocks at one time and then move them over and then continue to jump the paddocks as we move them. And then on top of that, mowing is essential here. So we had to get that routine set into place. If you move livestock off of your property, we had to mow to keep the seed, the, you know, the bad vegetation from going to seed that they wouldn't consume. So it was just patterns and routines making sure that we had cash to continue to move forward with what we wanted to do. And then on top of that, finding the livestock that was suitable for what we wanted on to be able to consume and amend our land. 
I mean, in overdrive, it it was a lot. It was a lot. That's why the garden sat on hold until year two. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's move into that a little bit. Let's chat about the garden. What um what was your goal with the garden when you started that? We've always had up in Seattle, um, our garden space is very small. So we had to learn how to succession plant like fiercely fiercely like if the, if something was done and then we got our bumper crop out of it or we got a good harvest out of it we pulled it we dropped in something else that was essential to what we needed to do so now here with our garden space here we're sitting at a 7000 square foot garden um completely different soil completely different growing zone and um we wanted to make sure that we knew what was going on so we did a small test batch year 1 and a little test batch was just a couple of, you know, tomato plants and, you know, uh, sweet potatoes, okra, things like that, things that the South grew well. And so from there, what we did was we knew that we wanted to be sustainable to put up and preserve either through canning, fermenting, freeze drying, drying it all and put it into either the larder or cold storage and then to be able to consume for as long as possible in that sense. Um but now with the garden being as massive as it is and knowing that our area is, you know, pretty poverty stricken, um, we've opted to partner in with a an organization that's trying to get started that basically people can come in and pay what they can afford. And so a lot of the contribution from the garden outside of what we've put up for ourselves for sustainability purposes will go towards um, 10 CSA packages, and then the rest will be donated to this particular cause. Um, you know, we, we, I'm used to growing in raised beds. That's how we had to grow in the mountains of Washington. And so we did half of it, 3,500 square feet in raised beds with trellises. So we can utilize as much growing vertically as we possibly can. And then the other half is what is basically row gardening for corn and okra, sweet potatoes. Um, I have an allergy towards, certain foods. So we are, you know, we have to yield about 250 pounds of Roma tomatoes to put up all of our goods that we would need in tomato products for the year. So that's a big, big dedicated space that we're putting in for um, just food preservation in that sense. Absolutely. Um, so then what would you say the biggest change was from moving from Washington to starting to farm and garden in Tennessee? I know you said the 3,500 square feet of raised beds that obviously gets you up out of the ground and um, or off the, the flat ground and helps drain but was there any any other challenges you experienced i think that the whole as a whole the soil i mean we were running off of one inch of topsoil then we have something what we call chert chert is basically crushed limestone and pebble form and then underneath chert okay you have um clay so you the the best thing that we can do for our garden space is to do a no-till garden. Um, we have to build up the soil. So we've been working on that, you know, between the compost manure that we have, the extra bedding that's in the um the barns and the coops and things like that, with all of the leaves, we have wood chips. We've been slowly building that up to have a little bit more of a, a usable land, so to speak, to be able to do that. And even in the raised beds, we did a layering effect. So when the material that we use, because all the material that we built our raised beds from was already left on the farm. So once that material crumbles, then that whole space is still a no-tilled space that we can continue to use no-tills in that, that structured raised bed formation. And um, 
I think that was really important for us to do because in Washington state where we didn't have to do the no-till, the soil was great up there, even if it was on the side of a mountain. We, for me, having raised beds was ideal because there were certain things that we could not grow because of um, underground springs that would pop up. That was the purpose of raised beds in Washington. Now here with the raised beds is generally because we couldn't break through the chert to get to the clay in order to continually grow. And so that was the main point of the raised bed. But with the um, with the row gardening, we've been building that up since the day that we stepped foot onto the property. We moved the leaves on there. We got wood chips on there. Um, and then we've been just building up to the, a nice thick patch. Um, is it going to be lucrative going forward? Let's hope so. It won't, I mean, only springtime and summer will really tell for us at this point. Yeah, absolutely. That's fascinating. I didn't realize that that's kind of how your soil was set up down there. Yeah. Um, now, I'm assuming with Tennessee, too, that you're pretty heavily with uh, disease and insects. Oh, yes. Yes. We, uh, yeah, everything underneath the sun has hit us this year. Um, you know, between the tomato hornworms to the Japanese beetles and, you know, everything, everything loves the garden. Everything loves to consume the garden. We have tick infestation like crazy here. And then on top of that, it's just it's just one of those things that you have to manage and you have to be on top of. So we run a lot of guineas every year. We incorporate 40 to 60 guineas. Some stay, some wander off. Some are taken by predators. Um, but that manages a tick population because they can consume over 4,000 ticks, an individual bird a day. Uh -huh. And then from there, you know, we run ducks in our garden as well, too. Once things are a lot more seasoned, we move our duck flock in there uh -huh. to help control some of the other pests that could actually could occur that happens in there. Um, and then it's just constantly being on top of that space all the time to make sure that, you know, it, it doesn't get taken away from you, all that labor of your hard work taken away by just the infestation of what happens in that moment in time in the garden that can destroy it. Yeah. What kind of time commitment does the homestead take? Um, it, It's all day without a shadow of a doubt. It is all day, especially when you're in milk. We have two cows in milk and um, I travel a lot. So when I travel for conferences and things like that, Justin takes time off. Luckily, he's able to take time off from his current position because he's only there Monday through Thursday to manage the farm. So it's it's a constant. It's a constant movement. And then when the garden's in session, this year we'll be putting a watering system into the garden where it will be set on a timer. And all it has to be managed is, is that someone is checking the garden and make sure that it actually turned on. So there's no hand watering it or anything like that. Um, you know, we're up and out by 630 in the morning, the cows get milk starting at 730 in the morning. And then from there, we let the sheep out. We have four, because we're so remote, the coyote situation here is pretty fierce. And so um, the sheep are moved from the pasture to the barn um, nightly with our livestock guardian. And then, you know, we're moving them out so they can be out on pasture after that. And then from there, you know, the hogs need to be fed and moved and we run our hogs in the woods. So we don't have to move them quite often, but because where our wooded situation is, we have to watch out for land erosion. So there can be a quick change in the schedule to 
say, okay, we can't wait to move them until Saturday. We've got to move them today now because it could have rained really heavily and the erosion is just too fierce right where they're at. So we're moving them. So it's an, it's an all day commitment. It, it It's an all day, seven day commitment. And us leaving the farm together, Justin and I is pretty much very rare, mm. very, very rare. Gotcha. So talk to me a little bit about the preserving aspect, because that's what your book's about. And yes. that's what you do a lot of. Um, how do you design your garden for preserving? So basically everything's intentional, like intentional. When I say that, I know that I need anywhere from 250 pounds to 350 pounds of actual meaty tomatoes. Like we're talking Romas, Amaranzos, you know, Amish paste, those meaties, the ones that aren't good to actually just pick off and eat like a slicing tomato. I mean, of course you can can with a slicing tomato, but it has a lot of liquid in it. So you would need probably three times more of a slicing tomato than you would of a meatier plum variety, right? To preserve your food. Uh So I know that for example, a Roma tomato plant is going to give me about 30 pounds of yield. So I know how many plants I need to plant if I want to put up 250 pounds of tomatoes or 350 pounds of tomatoes and how much I put up will depend on what I have left over from last year. Okay. Um, the other thing is, is that my, my, you know, we have one out of the seven of our seven children left in the house and she doesn't like, um, softer home canned green beans or carrots anymore. So now what we do is we just freeze our whole yield. So we know that succession planning is going to give us a bigger yield. So I will plan for basically six whole beans to go into the ground. Two weeks later, I'll plant another six. And then from there we go. I do a lot more of um, determinant vegetation growing than indeterminate because I want my crop to yield a, at one time for preserving aspects. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the same thing with corn. Luckily in Tennessee, I have two cold weather seasons and I have two summer seasons. So basically my corn is done, but if I plant corn right at the end of May, June, I can get another yield in the ground for a fall harvest. So I know I can run corn twice in one growing season, for example. Um, You know, growing vertically has really helped us out on that as well too. So with melons, I don't need to preserve a lot of melons, but we eat a lot of melon. Right. So instead of wasting the ground space, I'll grow up. So what we try to put in is items that I know will preserve well. I own a freeze dryer, though. I don't freeze dry a lot of goods because the storing unit of them is a little difficult. Um, I don't have it set up there. So we don't use our freeze dryer quite as often as we used to in Washington state Um, with canning. I don't do quite as much canning other than like For example, soups and stews are a great thing that I like to put up, sometimes meat, because if the power goes out, I need to have something quick and ready just to heat up and feed my family. Majority of the items that we put up are basically in-season ferments. So we are trying to figure out a way because of that to put in a small hoop tunnel that will allow us to continually produce food through the winter months here. Um, it's still a little bit tricky for us because the way that our land is set up, it, it, we have to figure out how we're going to be able to do that, but corn can be frozen or canned easily, you know, potatoes store well, you know, in a fresh form, as long as you get the right variety, same thing with onions, same thing with garlic. So as much as we can store in its whole form, we want to do that. Then after that, we go into soup, stews, meats, and things like that are the biggest thing we put up is tomatoes because 
you know, you can make so many things with tomatoes, but I put my investment where I don't have to grow multiples. My slicing tomato section is much smaller than what I dedicate to my canning tomato section, for example. Um, the other thing that we, you know, leafy greens are a big staple for us. Luckily, we can grow them pretty much year round other than during the July, August months. But other than that, we have everything that we need here on the farm because of the, our ability to know how and how much to put up. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So then you mentioned a greenhouse. Is that something you're working on currently? We have a seed starting greenhouse that is a okay. 16 by eight, but we are looking to put up for just personal consumption. So something smaller for leafy greens throughout the winter months. Um, and the reason why is because we do consume a lot of salad. We do consume a lot of kale, chard, you know, all of those leafy greens because I do ferment a lot of it. Yeah. And so I really, really am just wanting to take that next step into putting up the greenhouse. But I'm a very big structure person. Now that we've got infrastructure on point, right? Well, is it really ever on point, but no, close but enough. Close enough, and then, yes. Right? And so, and so now that we have that done and we have all of our livestock on, we have a ram for continually breeding our sheep. Then we have a boar to continually breed our hogs. We now, because of you know the mRNA vaccination that is now being required in beef, we brought on a Dexter bull to breed our, to our milk cows. So then we, we have meat and dairy at the same time. So because that's done, I don't have to worry about that. Now, once my garden is really up to point, to the point where it's just being maintained on a regular basis, then I feel that we are equipped and ready to move on to the greenhouse. This will be our first full test mm -hmm. of a 7,000 square foot garden. And that is going to be essential because a couple of things rely on it. Our cells, our, our small you know testing CSA packages, and then to be able to help feed our community. Yeah. So once I feel that that is under control and manageable, then I think I can add one more thing, like a, a greenhouse for a winter garden added on there. The lifestyle that I live, now that we are set up to truly feed ourselves and help our community and sell our provisions off the farm and things like that, I think that being able to understand that it takes time and that if you jump in too soon to all of it, that's why the garden waited until our meat source was secured. Mm. I think that it sets us up to fail because we're not equipped and prepared or ready to dedicate our time into it because we haven't been able to manage our time properly. Now right. that we're managing our time in raising livestock, moving fencing and getting animals to be to the processors and, you know, starting seeds and, and getting the garden going and the food preservation. And then here I am, I have to do it between being out of town and having it set up so it doesn't overwhelm Justin to water the garden, take care of the animals, do more infrastructure, add on, uh, build our milk barn that we need, you know, things like yeah. that. Yeah. So learning how to simplify and not chew, take on more than you can chew, right? Yeah. Is essential because I think that people that want to live this life, oh, let me just give you an example. When we were first here, we were hit with a lot of people wanting to come see the farm that, you know, that had followed us and stuff like that. And so I did yeah. a lot of farm tours for nothing. Just, yeah, come by. I'd love to meet you. You're part of my community. And the biggest question was, how did you do this all in six months? Yeah. Right. And I have to remind them, this isn't just six months. This is 
this is like eight years in the making with excellent mentors, Joe Salatin, you know, uh, Mr. Perkins, you know, Katie Milhorn, like all these mentors that had taught me and that I could, you know, easily say, hey, you know what, hey, Joel, you know, what are you running your pigs for? Because right now this is what I'm doing. And where's your market value on that? That's our last conversation we had in November together. And, yeah. you know, it, it's one of those things that, yes, I did it all in six months, Justin and I, but we couldn't have done it without knowing the right people that have succeeded prior to us to guide us and mentor us through additionally, right? And I think that those who are new to wanting to live this life are overwhelmed because they're they're taking on too much. They don't realize that grace is a big thing with creating a sustainable life. And community is even bigger, right? And so to have them understand that is is key. Like, yes, you want to raise dairy goats because you have seven acres. And then you want a large garden because you know that you can garden. But are you balanced enough to do it all together while homeschooling on top of that? That is a mm. big ask. Yeah. And so I think that people really have to realize that take your time, like take your time, have a smaller garden until your, your land is ready to run itself for a couple of days. And your livestock is content to be in that paddock for two days. You know, realistically, we should move our livestock once a day, but you know, that me asking Justin to move our livestock once a day when I'm gone four days out of the week at a conference is a lot. So I have to tell people all the time, you've got to do it based on what is okay for you, right? Yeah, you're, you're if it's okay context. that you're right, you know, and, you know, though, you know, I can look at Sean and Beth Daltrey and be like, oh my gosh, I would love to have that set up, right? And I go to Polyface and I'm like, okay, I would love to have that. But in truth, my 42 acres works for exactly what we need in that moment mm. of time. Like now Justin luckily can retire at 55 and then he's home full time. Mm. Yeah. But until he gets there, we have to do what really works. Correct. And I think that people forget that, right? That they just want it all right then and there, but it takes seasons, seasons to get to this point. Yeah. Well, another thing you kind of glossed over a little bit, but I think that's incredibly important. You talked about the aspect of um, the busy work or getting the systems in place mm -hmm. so that you can do yeah. more things more efficiently. And yeah. I don't think people realize just how inefficient most homesteads, start off homesteads are. Um, I mean, case in point, we have, we have an active farm that, I mean, it's very busy with multiple team members and all of that. But we just, we're in the process of moving our wash and pack from one building to another because we're putting mm -hmm. in a certified kitchen. And we just went, we just this week when we were processing, we were so much slower because even though it's a nice new open space with, you know, much better features, the water system still not set up properly. So we were literally running hoses across the ground to fill the tanks and all of that. And yeah. it's just such a massive difference then being able to, you know, swing down our Hudson valves and open a valve and fill the tank. And that's going to automatically right. fill it, shut it off automatically and be ready to go. So there's just those aspects of that. You said that getting your homestead set up properly with the prop with the water where it needs to be and feed in, in, in the best places and, um, you know, the barns mm -hmm. and all of that. There's just such an aspect yes. there that's important. And I 
think that that's that you're right. Like one small change to a setup is a big thing, right? Mm-hmm. Is a big, big thing. Like we were milking in the barn because we had built our, you know, the stanchion was in the barn and whatnot. But then come winter time, I'm like, I don't want to milk in the barn. We have a milk machine. You know, Justin has carpal tunnel, so he's milking alone when I'm gone. So I was like, why don't we? And it's not practical. It's not pretty in any way, shape or form. I think that the the concept of having this perfect everything is what we should all strive for. But then again, it's not perfect, right? Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. always can be improved, can be modified, can be made better. But I think that when I made the decision and trust me, you know, I'm, I'm right here on old country road. When I made the decision to take the stanchion, to bring it into the carport, and mind you, the road is right there. You can see my carport. Yeah. To put the stanchion in the carport because I have electricity there and because I have access to hot water, that was a big decision. So now Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, we're here in the carport. I want the milk barn here. And this is the reason why. And it's practical. It's good. Is it ideal? You know, it's there. I still have access to hot water there to wash all my equipment. But I think the same thing that you said, you know, any minor move for anything, if you don't know the layout of your land right then and there, which you know the layout of your farm, right? If you don't know the layout of your land, then guess what happens? You are going to modify it. So why not do something that's more of a temporary basis for a little while until you know exactly what you're going to do? Temporary meaning my sanction is in my carport. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then from there, it's moving to a permanent structure because I know that makes sense to me. It has access directly to the pasture where all that gate is open. They come right into the milk barn. They get milk. They turn around their leaf. There's a dishwasher in there. There is going to be a hot tankless hot water tank Mm -hmm. in there. And then on top of that, my equipment can dry properly because it can have heat in there as well, too. Yeah. And but people want permanent right then and there. And, you know, as many times as I try to tell them, don't worry about permanent. Don't worry about it right now. The idea is not to lug water, right? But I'll tell you a mistake that I made. I'll I'll freely admit it. When we were running water, Justin was like, we need to run water to the North pasture and we need to get it to the fence line, tee it off. And then you have water going into the wooded area. And then you have your dry lot area where in the wintertime, when it rains a lot, our kids, our pigs come back up to closer to the pasture in a cedar. I don't know. I call it a cedar little thicket forest yep, thing. Yep. And they're sheltered from the rain, but it's a dry lot. So if they even build anything in there too deep, we can clear it out. And then they're back in the woods in the, in the wintertime, the summertime. So I made the mistake and I said, no, not right now. Let's do it later. Let's get these, the water here run first. And now I'm kicking myself Mm. because now we have to go back because of my mistake to not run water to the North pasture when I had everything ready to go to run it. Yeah. So we make mistakes, right? Things change. Everything is different. And I, I just, the, the, how do I say it? The, um, the questions that I get at conference, you know, are most of the individuals are so frustrated with where they're at. Most of them want to know how to simplify and make it better. Most of them want to know how and why we got to the place that we are now so quickly. And then on top of that, they they just want to expedite. But then what happens is, is that they rush through it so much that their animal husbandry starts to decline. Mm-hmm. And then they start getting, you know, livestock health issues in, amongst their their herds or their livestock or their poultry or, or whatever the case is. 
And then they want to bag it. They want to give up. They want to just, you know, park it for a while and think about it. And the easiest solution is get a dry erase board, plan your year. Like we know in the winter time, we bought a a 70s, a farm with the early, early, early 70s brown shag carpet still in the house. Oh boy. Okay. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And it's dry rotted. Let me just make that very clear. <laughs> so instead of really worrying about that, we knew our food source was so essential that this is now year two. We are just getting into the house to completely take care of it, but it's done in phases, right? I don't have the time and Justin doesn't have the time to remodel a whole entire house in one year. We, our priority is food. Our priority is to be sustainable. Our priority is to consume a clean food source. So balance is the nature, balance is the key. So we know we're inside now putting in new flooring. We just got a wood stove. So the wood stove's going in so we can minimize, you know, propane or electricity. And then from there, we've got to put in a, a completely new kitchen. Because when I say the cabinets are falling apart because they were from the 70s, the cabinet's falling apart. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got wood panel in it, but that's okay. So I think that if anything, I mean, and even you know this, everything is done by the season, right? Everything is done by the season. And if I know that I'm going to be gone, like in April, I'm gone three weeks out of the four weeks of April. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm traveling. I've got conferences. And so is that an ideal time for me to really think about my garden? I have to, I have no choice. Right. Mm-hmm. So I had to turn around and I have to contract my daughter's best friend to come water my greenhouse for me while yeah. I'm gone. And so, which is totally fine because she needed to make a little extra money anyways. And she's very reliable. And that takes the pressure off of Justin, right? Cause he's still working And he's still managing the farm. Lola has a part-time job. She's taking college courses as a sophomore. So it's it's one of those things where how can we still continue to do this? Like to me, I would rather pay a reliable 16-year-old kid to come water my greenhouse so I can make sure I get the vegetation into the ground by middle of May. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's, it's planning. It's all planning. And if you try to jump ahead, for the lack of words, you, you, you're screwing yourself over basically. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. You, you can't, you can't jump ahead. You have to plan your year and plan it well and stick to it. Correct. And that's yeah. how you can succeed in getting to where you need to be. Yeah. Missed the thriving farmer vegetable summit. No worries. You still have the chance to catch all the invaluable insights and expert advice. Grab your all-access pass today and dive into the wealth of knowledge shared by over 20 successful vegetable growers and sellers. Learn at your own pace about innovative farming techniques, effective marketing strategies, and how to maximize yields and profits on your farm or homestead. Don't let this opportunity slip away. The knowledge and tips from our experts can help you turn your farming dreams into a thriving reality. Visit farmsummits.com to get your all-access pass and start your journey to a more successful and sustainable farming future. Another thing you're passionate about is that the homestead be profitable. Talk to us a little bit about that. (laughs) Yes. So basically, I would have known that... Okay, let let me backtrack. The vision for many women is, is that their husbands are home with them. 
that is the vision. That is the dream. That is the, uh-huh. that is the epitome of having everything together, right? You've got your farm or your homestead, your farmstead, you've got your spouse home with you, you're raising your kids. And that is now the biggest focus for most of those individuals that live our lives. Most of them, some of them want to stay working. Some of the spouses are like, nope, I love my job. I want to do this. You go ahead and do it. I homesteaded it alone for many years. Um, but I think that the drive for so many to want to come together and do this together has been such a awakening point for the people who live this life. And for the first time this year, I opened up um, one of my talks at the conferences is to create a prof- profitable homestead, regardless of your property size. Mm-hmm. And um, it was so well reserved, uh, re- uh, so well, uh, so accepted, so well accepted. Mm-hmm. And the yeah. reason why is because it's not just about this. You have to raise poultry, raise chickens to get there, or you have to sell beef, or you have to sell hogs. I basically gave you the A to Z's on all the ways that you can make an income based on what we do here. We have an Airbnb. People can come here, stay at our Airbnb and get the farm experience, take one of our private workshops Mm -hmm. that we offer, and then, you know, be here while doing kayaking down the Buffalo River or whatever. And you don't have to have a house structure to do that. Put in a campground, put in your RV, put in a yurt, Mm -hmm. and then open it up to that, right? Or you know what? Think about doing pasture raised chickens. You know, in Tennessee, you can do 20,000 birds a year without USDA filing for it. So can you do that? Can you make a profit raising some pasture raised chicken on your property to at least break even on your food costs, your labor and your material costs, right? Yeah. Then, you know, depending on your state and your location, you can offer for CSA boxes. CSA boxes do not have to be weekly. You can do a CSA box as much as you want. You know, for our CSA box, we have three options that you can get. You can get a vegetable one, you can get a dairy one where it's just eggs, vegetables, and milk, or you can mm-hmm. get the farmstead package where you're getting a pound of either ground beef or ground sausage, your dairy products, your so many pounds of produce. Then on top of that, potentially a small container of lard or a small container of boat broth. Yeah. So with that said, you know, those are things that you're doing anyways, you can get each package depending on where you're at anywhere from $55 up to $75 a box. And yeah. it's nothing that you're not already doing. Um, you know, we, we don't sell our sheep. We don't sell lamb because we consume a lot of lamb. And even though lamb's just as pricey as beef, I would rather sell a half or a whole hog pay me by the pound, turn around, send them to the processors. You pay the processor from there. I've made everything that I need. Selling feeder pigs makes me no money. You see what yeah. I'm saying? Yeah. I sell a feeder pig for 150. I can sell a whole hog for $675. Yes. So yeah. it's one of those things that people have to look at their piece of land, whether it's five acres, 10 acres, 42 acres, and what they're willing to do on that aspect. If you are skilled at food preservation, especially fermentation, offer workshops there until we had the airbnb until we had this the guest house built and done we were doing 15 individuals in my tiny kitchen in fermentation workshops Mm. we do pasture poultry processing workshops teaching people how to really truly utilize your pasture to raise your chickens and then from there how to humanely dispatch how to preserve them how to part your birds you know so many people don't know how to part a bird yes yeah so you know yeah that's crazy right 
And then from there, you know, whether or not, and I'm going to say this, whether or not you want to go rogue in, you know, in Tennessee, you can't sell parted birds legally. You have to file USDA licensing. Do you want to go rogue on that? I can't sell raw milk as human consumption. I have to sell raw milk as pet consumption. Am I going to follow that guideline or do I want to go rogue? Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? I could do I could do milk shares. Fine. That's a great way for me to bypass that. I could do a hog share. I could turn around and do you know whatever. But you have to make that decision on what your property can offer, what skill set you have, and then determine from there what you can do to bring an in income. Right. So yeah. the first thing you need to do is minimize your debt. That's the first thing, because all that money that you're making is already going into the property to the point where most of them are most individuals are broke by the next payday. Mm-hmm. So let's minimize your debt. And then from there, while you're doing that, think about what skill you have to offer and what you can offer based on your cottage laws in your state. And then from there, as your confidence builds, then start incorporating more and more. The Airbnb here rents only Thursday checkout on Sunday. Mm-hmm. And the reason why is because I don't want to, I don't want to clean it multiple times turning it o- over. Right. Yeah. So that's a flat price, but we also have what we call stock the fridge. So they, once they get the, once I send them an email for the keyless entry for the front door, they also get the option to stock their fridge. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Would you like to stock your fridge? Here is a list of items that we actually currently have on the farm. If they're here in growing season, they can add a small CSA package of whatever we have available. They get their real milk, their raw milk, they get their eggs. They can get purchase whatever leftover meat we have in the freezer in that moment in time. Right. And then they have everything here. So they don't have to go to Walmart or drive an hour and 20 minutes away to the next grocery store. Mm. Yeah. So though that is our biggest add-on. It's not the rental of Airbnb. It's the private workshops. It's to join a workshop. It's to do a tour. It's to, you know, our, our, our stock the fridge basically is where the income comes from. Yeah. And, you know, I think individuals see one thing like in Tennessee, I thought I was coming to this huge ag state. Tennessee raises beef. That's what Tennessee does. Mm-hmm. And so with so many transplants coming to Tennessee, right, they have to think they like they're shocked. I was shocked. I was I was shocked that there was, you know, not many other people doing anything more than raising beef cows. Like to have people raise dairy here is not heard of, especially yeah. in Wayne County. They don't want to milk a cow. They don't want to, you know, do, do I see it coming back? I, I do see it coming back to the younger generation, like the 30-ish individuals that grew up here, they are trying to return back to that time. Whereas anybody above that's older, they do not want to do it at all. They don't. They have no desire. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that, you know, when you make a profit or you seek to make a profit, you have to figure out like what it is that you can actually contribute whether you're doing it together or you're doing it separately until you can do it together is key. It doesn't take much for someone in, you know, to know the cottage law and say, well, I can sell pickled items, jams and jellies and now ferments, right? Legally at any farmer's market anywhere or to put it online anywhere, right? And I could sell hogs. I could either sell feeders and I could sell this. If someone's not interested in raising up their hogs, and yeah, selling feeders is fine while putting meat in your freezer. But here, market value is anywhere from $80 to $150 for a hog, you know, a feeder hog. And so 
where do you want to bring that money in? Like, where is it? What can you do to incorporate that, bank it, pay off the debt, bring down the mortgage, build a clientele base, and then bring your spouse home like you really want to do and like they want to do. And I think that that is what the driving force is before with homesteading. It was let's get some land. Let's raise our own food. Let's grow our own vegetables. Let's preserve it. Now it's like, how do we bring them back? How do we bring my husband back home that they can work with me and we could do this together as a small family farm or a small family homestead or whatever the case is. And I think that that's what that drive is. It's a shift. You know, we went from food ownership to now incorporating and trying to make a living out of it and normalize small family farms. Because believe it or not, in Tennessee, small family farms struggle immensely because they don't want to pay the price. They don't want to pay what it costs to raise a pasture-raised chicken, non-GMO, moving your your tractor once or twice a day, once minimum, and that we process ourselves kind of thing. Um, And it's hard. Like I have to truck my stuff into a state where there's a lot of transplants that want that service from me. And that's an hour and 20 minutes away. Mm. Gotcha. So, right. So you have to you have to think about it like that, right? If if you know, family Smith is living on ten acres and they can raise hogs on those ten acres and make more money raising them up to a two hundred to two hundred fifty pound hog to go into the freezer and sell them off that way, then only raise hogs. Go for it. Then do a CSA with a bigger garden, right? Um, I you know it's it's the need that I'm seeing right now that they want their spouse home with them. They do. They really do. And it is a necessity. And, you know, YouTube was so big that people were making so much money on YouTube. But in truth, this skill of living this life needs to be taught for those individuals who are visual learners, right? And you would be surprised how many people in your town do not know how to preserve food. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or practice holistic medicine in a, in a very basic, you know, beginners kind of way. So, you know, it's one of those things, hone in on your skills. Think about what you do here. You do well on your homestead or your farm and what you can offer as far as teaching goes, because, you know, if we don't want to end up like the Netherlands, or we don't want to end up, you know, being taxed, you know, as a small family farm to the point where we're not even viable anymore. We've got to teach other people to do this because my whole mantra is I teach 10 people, those people teach 10 people and so on and so on and so on. Whether you're going to have a small family farm in Homestead or whether or not you're willing to support that small family farmer, it's still one more voting power at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And that that's my goal. That's my end goal. And I think that, you know, they, people need to understand that, you know, is it important to sell something off of your farm? So it makes it normal. Go for it. Even if it's baked goods, sourdough, everybody wants to buy sourdough loaf. They'll go to Walmart and buy it, but why not buy it from you? Yeah. That's actually the number one sale uh, product right now in our farm store. See? Uh, Yeah, that's gone from uh, we started maybe seven months ago and now it's the number one seller in there. So um, we're actually moving all that in house because we were 
bringing that in from a local uh, baker and we're actually bringing that all in house. Oh yeah. So, um, yeah, but why wouldn't you, you know, it's, it's one of those things. I mean, a basic sourdough sandwich loaf, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's incredible that people want this. They want that sourdough so bad. And when the it's, it's the tedious aspect. Like I don't make sourdough with weights and measures. I don't weigh my water. I don't weigh my starter. I don't weigh my flour. I take a look at my sourdough. I mix in my flour. I mix it some more. If it's too watery, I add a little bit more flour until it becomes like a pancake, not a crepe, but a pancake Mm. consistency. And that is just call it lazy man's way of doing it. But at the end of the day, it makes some killer products. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I think that with that aspect of just teaching, you know, the workshop is just called, you know, the farmhouse sourdough. It, that's just what it is. Weights and measures. You're, you're, you're not weights and measures. You're, you know, your grandmama did not weigh everything to make a loaf of bread. She mm-hmm. did a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And that's how it was done. And I think that our aspect of teaching it like that is key to showing that this life is not hard. It's yeah. just sometimes you bite more than you can chew and then it becomes hard. You yeah. can't learn all the skills in one season. You can't learn every single food preservation method and, and be prime at it. You know, the farm soil's guide to preserving the harvest. When I wrote that book, I just, I wrote it for the beginner, the individual that, that is ready to learn and is willing to tackle it, you know, food preservation by food preservation and to answer all the questions there. And I've been blessed that book sits at the top 1% nonfiction book alongside a ball. Mm. And, you know, and it, it, it stayed there. It's what, I think it's what, four years old now, maybe oh, wow. four years old. Yeah. And so it has maintained strategy, you know, tractors, tractor supply picked it up. Cabela's picked it up this year. So it's one of those things that, you know, people are interested in learning how to do this. They don't want to buy multifaceted books to learn, right? Yeah. They're jumping in it. They grab this book. It's got everything in it. And you know, it, it gets them there. And and, they, and I have seasoned individuals still referring to it because they forget how to determine what their pounds per pressure, pounds per square inch for a pressure canner is, right? Yeah. Or what kind of salt to use for fermenting or, you know, how do they make water, um, water kefir or whatever the case is. And I mean, when I wrote the book, it was hard. It was done in two months, 85,000 words in two months. My editor pushed me and it was, it ended up being probably one of the only books on the market that covers every single method of food preservation. I think that that's why it sits as high as it does. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's a so, good book. <laughs> so yeah. So about the, the book, cause I wanted to make sure we did talk about that. Sounds like you cover everything in there. Give us a little bit of like what, what, what actually covers in their book. So it's basically, you know, everybody wants to start with canning first. And mm-hmm. that is like my biggest pet peeve. I'm going to say it. It's my biggest pet peeve because canning does nothing but store your goods, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas we are an unhealthy country, period. We're unhealthy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I wish that my editor had allowed me to put fermentation first, but it's not. Fermentation actually comes in after drying, believe it or not. So it goes canning, drying, fermentation, and you know, then it goes into curing at that point and root cellar storage, cold, you know, cold storage for your raw vegetables. But it was one of those things where it takes that individual who is new to this lifestyle and wants to learn how to dive in. Like we dive in, but the nice thing about it is I'm the type of person of, you see what you get. This is me. 
right? And I had an I had an editor who was like, Anne, I want you to write it like they're in your kitchen, like mm. right there. Yeah. They're sitting there with you. You're talking to them. This isn't some encyclopedia of anything. It's it's you teaching them. And that was the best thing that she could have did for me because I struggled trying to keep it stiff. And she was like, no, 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 we don't want that. And so that is the one of the best reviews that I get is I felt like you were right there with me. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? It was mm-hmm. one of the best things. Um, and the thing, and, and the thing about it is, is that when we talk about it, we talked about my struggles too. Like, this is what I was taught. Like I had 800 jars of jam my first year because I dove in really deep, but guess who didn't eat 800 jars of jam. Mm-hmm. And so we also talk about like troubleshooting, like, you know, even to this day, siphoning is something that I struggle with because on an electric stove in, in an old home, your current fluctuate so much that it causes uneven heat distribution in your canner. So of course your liquid is going to siphon out of your jars. So it's one of those things that they get to hear my, my journey, as well as learning the science to understand the traditional, like here, here's the truth about it. If you dove deep into the national center for home food preservation, which is affiliated with the FDA and the USDA, Right. It's an organization. It's 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 a it's an arm of them that teaches people how to preserve food in a safe scientific environment. Yeah. All right. The biggest argument that you're going to hear between what we call scientific canners, which are ones that only will use recipes from that particular website or the ball blue book, right? Uh To traditional, which are the ones that are like, my grandma did it this way and this is how I'm going to do it, is this. You have to dive so deep into that website to know that the biggest argument is, should you leave your rings on your jar or should you take them off during storing? And the scientific canners are, you're going to kill somebody. If you leave your rings on, the lids are going to pop, botulism is going to set in, mold's going to set in and things like that. But if you dive into the National Center for Home Food Preservation, deep in there, it does state that you can leave your rings on your jars, but this is how you do it. So there's so much discrepancy being taught across the board, even with your local extension offices, that misinformation is shot all the way across the board. And then you have this battle between this is safe, this is not safe. You know what I mean? Do I hot water bath meat? No, I don't. I don't. Because I know that I have to keep that water boiling for almost 18 hours at a true hot hard raging boil, which you can never do because once the water, you know, starts to boil down, you've got to add more water Mm -hmm. to your boiling water to add water. By the time you take off the lid, guess what happens? Your heat distribution releases. So there are things that I'm like, you know what, you guys get a pressure canner, go ahead and do it, go to town, can what you want with that. And let's do it right. Mm -hmm. You don't have to, you know, there's nothing that you have to do, you know, down into the book where I teach, you know, if you end if the grid ends up going down, right let's just say the grid goes down. Do you know what the hottest wood on your property and in your location is that you can potentially still run a pressure canner? Or do you only have softwood around where you're at? Mm-hmm. Because you'll never get the heat distribution properly on softwood. Correct. You know, even fermenting, I'm half Thai. I grew up in Asia. My father was in the military and, you know, fermented foods was a staple. I mean, nobody even thought that it was a healthy food. It was just a way of food preservation and a way to eat foods, right? Whereas in America, it's a lost art. It's gone. It's like people are a bliss to understanding. I don't like the taste of kraut. Well, guess what? Let me give you my Hawaiian kale kraut. It's sweet and it's perfect and it's going to help you. Let me teach you how to brew kombucha at home. 
Let's do this. You know, take a shot of kombucha a day, anything to help balance your gut flora. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we, we've let it go. The mass of the supermarkets hit America and canning went down the whole fermentation. Well, that was gone a while ago. And then on top of that, storing food, it was gone once the grocery stores hit. So, you know, now it's time to bring it back. And whether you are doing it full time like we do, or if you want to just do it as a hobby because it's fun to make jams and jellies, guess what that leads to? That leads to pickled items. Guess what that leads to? Oh my gosh, I've got so many vegetables and I don't have the freezer space to store it. Uh-huh. That leads to canning. So it's one of those things that people have to understand that, you know, you've got to know the science to understand the traditional methods and can traditional meth and can condition traditional methods cross over to the scientific aspect and Honestly, if you're seasoned, then you know the answer to that is yes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, you can't keep a fermented item. Well, you can forever, and it's just going to turn to mush, right? So, you know, you've got to eat your fermented foods in prime. So, that's why that small hoop tunnel is in the back of my mind for next year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I can have not only fresh produce, but my ferments off of my farm all year long. Yeah. And I think that people have to keep the end goal in mind. You know, is it your health? If it's your health, then you know that you need to raise your own food or chop from a small local farmer. That's trustworthy. Yeah. Well, we still actually have cabbage out in the field. Oh, yeah. That would be great. Yeah. Where Uh, are you at? I'm sorry. I don't know where you're located. Yeah. We're in Southwest Ohio. So you're running off of what? You're doing low tunnels for that? Uh, no, it's just under row cover out in the field. Now, granted, we haven't gotten oh. too cold. I mean, the coldest we've gotten mm. is high teens. Um, but yeah, cabbage will take, okay. cabbage will take, I mean, our, actually we've got daikon out there too right now. We got daikon. Oh my gosh, jealous. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. It's I not- have the best daikon kimchi radish recipe ever. So if you ever want it, let me know. Uh, yeah, I do actually. <laughs> so send it over. <laughs> yes. Okay. Because <laughs> we tried kimchi and we were not happy with the results. The flavor just wasn't like. Really? Yeah. Oh. We must have the right. Are you recipe. using fish sauce? Um, I believe we did, but yeah, I'll have to look at what the ingredients you've got in there. And um, yeah. But I, yeah, we know we do use fish sauce, and um, because that's Good. that's such a key ingredient right there. So yes, absolutely, yeah. 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 So I'm jealous about the, yeah, jealous about the cabbage and the daikon for sure. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to have to wrap this up. Uh, and unfortunately I do have to go to some other things. Um, but Hey, thank you so much for hanging out and just chatting. Um, it's really great, um, info and, um, I love your heart and what you guys are working on and looking to accomplish down there. And your teaching is so important because absolutely people really do need this information. Um, and I think one key part that I pulled out of what we discussed was, um, don't try to go too fast because if you go too fast, you get, as you said, frustrated, overwhelmed, and then you quit. Yes. Um, And it's not worth to think that you got to do all the things at once and not be able to get anything done because you're um, frustrated and you just end up quitting. Correct. Yes. All right. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Have a great rest of your day. You too. Bye now. So there you have it. Another episode in the books. So I'd love if you would hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Those mean everything to us. We love to hear what you're thinking. If you have a podcast guest that you can recommend, please pop on over to the Thriving Farmer podcast website and leave us a review. That's thrivingfarmerpodcast.com.